Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted to have on the show today, Anne Nakurji, CEO of Renault Ricard, a global leader with Premier Wines and Spirits. And tell us a little bit about the company. You run a fascinating organization that beyond wine and spirits is committed to art and the environment and running a socially responsible organization. Absolutely. First of all, thank you. I'm really excited to be here with you. You work on something that is near and dear to my heart. So Pernod Ricard is the second largest wine and spirits company in the world. I am chairman and CEO of North America. Our global CEO and chairman, Alex Ricard, is the grandson of the founder of the company, an amazing leader in, in his own right. And this is a company that believes in this notion of conviviality. And what does that really mean? Because it's kind of a French word, but it's all about unlocking the magic of human connection. And there is magic when people come together and we're here to unlock it. And that's the business that we are in. And I would say at the heart of our company, where our passion really comes from is, you know, when you're drinking a glass of wine, you're actually drinking grapes or you're having a cosmopolitan, you're actually drinking wheat. At the core of our company, we're an agriculture company. And so this notion of creating a future because we have to take care of our terroir and our planet and the climate and being connected to our farmers, that's the heart of our company. We take that very, very seriously. And that then elevates to our mission, which is if we can do that well, we can also take care of human beings by connecting them in the world. I at one point ran a nature preserve as my kind of passion project. And the idea that when you create opportunities for people to have experiences in nature yes. and the natural world, yes. they connect and care for the ecosystem differently than if they never leave a city and a walk is on a paved sidewalk in a neighborhood without ever having touched the earth other than to weed a garden, maybe. That's right. You know, when you're drinking spirits, you're actually drinking the earth. You're drinking the planet. They taste better than dirt. <laughs> they do a little magic to it. <laughs> so how did you get here? Because lots of people are decent leaders, but they don't end up as CEOs of the second largest company in their category. I can't say it was by design. Pernod Ricard, Alex himself kind of went out to do the search. And I've been in love with the brands for a long time. As I got to know the company, I fell in love with it because I think we live in a world today where we ask ourselves, am I just going to work for a company or am I going to buy into a company? As I got to learn about Pernod Ricard, I really bought into it. A lot of people were surprised that I was even considering the offer because alcohol has had a very, very difficult role in my life. My mother was killed by a drunk driver. I have been the victim of people who used alcohol as a weapon. And it was really my husband who said to me, the universe is speaking to you. The universe is saying, this is your opportunity to get a seat at the table. This is your opportunity to right the wrongs that have happened in your life. And if it's happened in your life, it's happened to a lot of other people. So that's how I ended up here. I feel very blessed because while I have an incredible job, for me, it's more of a calling. I work for a company that believes in that and that makes all the difference in the world. The passion shows from the moment you and I logged on, 
it was clear that this isn't just a thing you're doing to have a nice house. Right. It really is connecting to who you are and how you are in the world. And how I think I can give back to the world. What are you most proud of with your accomplishments with Pernod Ricard? You joined in 2019, right? Yeah, I joined three months before the pandemic, right? So I literally joined, met a couple of people, and then, you know, started working from my bedroom for like almost a year. <laughs> I am so proud of our people. I've learned a whole new chapter in leadership, partly because of the pandemic, but being in Pernod Ricard during the pandemic... This is a company whose culture is also about conviviality. It's about a caring culture. And I've worked in some really more stern and difficult cultures. And this is one where caring about each other and who we serve is so entrenched into the people of this company. We all know that when the pandemic hit, the uncertainty was, I mean, we were in a whole new world, right? And I was talking a lot about advancing through ambiguity, this notion of that intersection between knowing what's important and knowing what's in your control, because there's a lot of things you can work on. And the resiliency I saw in the people of this company blew me away. At the same time, you had George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, political unrest. I also saw vulnerability. I remember that week of George Floyd. I literally canceled all my meetings and went on a listening tour of my employees. And no meeting ended without tears and the pain that people were feeling. That was the other thing that it taught me as a leader, which is they're looking for leaders to be vulnerable. They're looking for leaders to say, you know what? I feel your pain and I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything and I need your help. So this notion of resiliency coupled with vulnerability, it was incredible what I witnessed. I feel like it was the people at Pernod Ricard that taught me how to be a better leader. It was a really defining moment for me. Isn't it amazing how we co-evolve? We grow up together. And I love that you're acknowledging the contribution that your team had to your growth as you do to theirs. Yes. Huge. It was huge. And so many leaders still live in the mindset that they're supposed to have the answers. When we think about leadership of the future, your title, you got to know it all to earn your salary. Those days are in the past. Leadership of the future is about A, being vulnerable, being a constant learner. Oh my gosh, this ability to be curious and listen to what other people have to say to help you think better. It being inquisitive about the world. I think the other one that people forget as a leader is we're also teachers. If you want a learning organization, you've got experience, other people have experience, but being willing to teach as opposed to tell is a really important aspect of leadership of the future. I want to probe a little bit on the vulnerability. It seems like there's a continuum from I know all and I there's nothing you people can teach me, whoever you people is. Right. And then the other side is I don't know anything and I'm waiting for you to help me. Vulnerability paired with ability to, to inspire. So there's stuff I don't know, but I'm still running a successful company. I'm not clueless. We're in uncertain times. So how do you navigate and message that? Because I think sometimes we confuse authenticity and vulnerability with losing our ability to still command the room and command respect. Yeah. That balancing act's not an easy one, right? And I think it's the difference What I'm still learning and I'm still evolving as a leader. I'm being very clear about the what versus the how. So as a leader, my job is to make sure that we deliver. We deliver on the impact of our people, deliver on our results, deliver on you know our impact to the community. So the what is what a leader has to be clear about 
that what comes from experience, it comes from knowledge, it comes from all the things that you expect of a leader. I think the difference is that leaders now have to step back on the how and let more people in on the how and the leader asking more questions around the how because leaders themselves, they're not closest to the action. The teams are. They probably have more insights on the how to deliver that what than you ever could as a leader. A long time ago, I, I had a leader in my one of my former companies who taught me this notion of servant leadership and that the pyramid is actually inverted and that the CEO is at the bottom and it's your front line. It's the people who pretty much are running the company, making your products, selling your products and services. They're at the top of the pyramid. You're in service to them. It's one thing to say it. I think it's something else to live it. I struggle with this concept because you're the one who's accountable to the board. Yes. So you are also in service of the stockholders or the, the owners, whether you're public or private, to your customers. So almost a conscious capitalism kind of stakeholder piece that I serve my employees. But if I overserve them, then I'm not serving the mission. Yes. So it's another one of the balancing acts. And I think we sometimes get so focused on what we have to deliver, the what. We make that the leading indicator, mm -hmm. and it's not. The leading indicator are the people. You take care of the people, and you give them the right capabilities and the right opportunities. The rest of it really does take care of itself. You talked about doing a listening tour, which I think is brilliant. I don't know anyone who did that in relationship to George Floyd. I do have other clients who do listening tours but they didn't do it on that topic. How do you measure your employee engagement, satisfaction, resilience, that range of things that's so crucial to helping them deliver? We're kind of disciplined and, and crazy about stuff like that. We actually every year do a survey on engagement and it covers everything from well-being to impact to growth to development. Because we use the same methodology every year, we can see are we progressing, not progressing? We understand versus benchmarks. I will tell you, as we've been doing this since the pandemic, the focus has gone from, do people feel like they're making impact? And the focus now of understanding people's engagement through their well-being has really shifted. When we went on that listening tour, and as we've been going through this, we've put far more stock into mental fitness as much as work capability fitness or physical fitness. You know, we have a lot of benefits around physical fitness, but now we've added so many other programs and benefits to our employees around mental fitness. People are dealing with much more today than they ever have mentally. And so it's it's been a real shift for us. And we work with this organization called Betera. We live in a world of technology. And so every employee gets their own personal survey they get to do with Betera. And based on what their mental needs are, it could be I'm dealing with someone who's elderly at home. I could be dealing with marital issues. I could have children issues. I could have people who are sick in my... So it doesn't matter. Or I could have issues with... I don't know how to present in a meeting. I don't know how to do public speak. It doesn't matter. They get to customize what their mental issues are and they get a coach and they get multiple coaches and they can do it online. So these sort of programs are things that honestly, pre-pandemic, we never even thought of. I'm just thinking of Europe and GDPR and some of the privacy concerns. How do you navigate that across borders? 
every country tries to operate based on their local laws, you know, local regulations. Some countries have other ways of doing this. This is what we do in the United States and uh, here in North America. And privacy is really important. So none of this information ever gets to anyone in the company. No one sees it. 100% private. It gives people confidence. It's helping them cope, not just to be better employees, but better people for their families, for their communities. I always talk about the fact that if you truly care about the people that work for you, start with caring for them as human beings first and then as an employee. I talk about it all the time. If we're going to develop you and you feel your calling is somewhere else and we were a part of that, we wish you the best because you want people that truly want to jump up and down in the morning to come to work. And if they're not, they should go do what matters. It's a short life. One of the things I'm proudest of in helping develop leaders is you can't develop as a leader without developing as a human being. Yes. So they end up being better parents and spouses because we talk about leaders first as the being, then the relating, then the doing. If you're a jerk, it doesn't matter how effectively you have mastered the art of crucial conversations. You're still a jerk. Absolutely right. And I think it goes both ways. A leader should care about their employees as human beings first, too. I agree with you. I want to get back to something you mentioned before and conviviality. You mentioned we both worked in organizations that thought that being a hard ass, kind of that stuff that goes with that personality is the way to achieve success and that something like conviviality is soft. How do you respond to soft isn't always bad? There may just be a different way to accomplish what you're trying to get to. Yeah, we talk a lot about how our conviviality mission and our conviviality culture is a competitive advantage. Look, we're in the business of people. We may sell spirits and we may sell wine, but ultimately we're in the business of people. And if you want to have value creation for your company, the thing you have to be the absolute expert in is people. And because we believe in conviviality and locking the magic of human connection, we actually have a science behind how people behave when it comes to moments of conviviality. So, you know, there's a science and we all know there's disciplines, right? There's behavioral economics. There's there's science behind this stuff. And, you know, as part of our transformation as a company, that's become the heart of our company. So we, on a predictive basis, know that when you are about to have a celebration, what is it that you need? What is it that you require? If you're going to have a, had a tough day and you just want to unwind, that's a very different need. So when you think about compassion and empathy, that not only leads to you understanding the business that you're in better, that also leads to you creating an environment for the people that are behind that mission to also feel that they matter. That's not soft. Those are actually pretty great things when you're trying to deliver results. I don't remember the engagement numbers, but the amount of people that are disengaged or actively disengaged, it's like 70 plus percent, the quiet quitting and, and all of that stuff. So it speaks to this culture of fear may deliver short-term results, yes, but it doesn't deliver long-term commitment. It doesn't deliver me giving my best. It delivers me creating results because I'm afraid someone's going to yell at me or fire me or all of the whatever thing happens when we don't do our jobs. Really well said. You know, I always talk about at the end of the day, whether it's the distributors I work with, our employees, I can make you sign a contract. I can make you sign an employee agreement. 
and as a part of that, yeah, I'm going to promise to pay you whatever. But at the end of the day, I can't make you or require you to give me your energy. You own that no matter what. And there's a lot of demands on everyone's energy. If I don't earn a disproportionate or greater than fair share of the energy, we're not going to win. Beautifully said. So I want to go to something you said when you took the job, that you lost your mother to drunk driving and how personal this choice was to you. I can't imagine that inner conversation. How does taking this role help you square that? Because it sounds like this is a big thing for you. It was. I'll give you two stories to address both. The first one is, you know, I've been a victim of sexual abuse. You know, alcohol played a role in that. So two to three weeks after I joined the company, one of our greatest and best brands is Absolute. Mm -hmm. I loved Absolute all my life. And Absolute has been about a brand that's been about provocation for decades. And it kind of lost its voice. And so I got a challenge from my boss, Alex, that said, you know what? How do we bring it back into conversation in a meaningful way? And at the time, the Me Too movement was a rage. This notion of consent, that a no means no, and only a yes to sex is a yes. And there's a lot of confusion in that conversation of consent. Did I really give it? Did I not give it? And so we created a campaign within a month of me joining. We launched it right at Valentine's Day called Sex Responsibly on Absolute. It was really a movement to create a conversation around, oh, you mean I, when I said no, it really meant no? And it's like, yes, and you do not have to feel guilty about it. And I lent my personal story to that campaign. And I came out openly and talked about the role alcohol had played. And I said very publicly that if you are going to buy our products because you're going to use it as a weapon, we don't want your business. I felt like I finally got to speak. Like it, it gave me an opportunity to say, you know, the things that happened to me, unacceptable. And to create a forum for other people to feel like finally someone's listening to me meant a lot. On my mother's passing, which, you know, I was 14 at the time. And to this day, it's the defining moment of my life. You know, again, Pernod Ricard for the last 30 years has worked with an organization called Responsibility.org. Our partnership with them means everything to me. They had been working on a bill that they were trying to keep in the infrastructure bill when President Biden was elected. And lo and behold, it got voted in. It's the Halt-Right Act. What it is, and Biden has now signed this into law, that starting in 2024, every car manufactured in the United States will have a built-in breathalyzer. I did not know that. That's pretty groundbreaking. He signed it into law. That was the day I looked up at the heavens and said, that one's for you, Mom. Thank you. I'm going to take a breath at this moment. So thank you. Thank you for asking. So when you ask me why I work at Pernod Ricard, that's why. And the difference you get to make, I've also had sexual violence. So creating the voice for women to be able to say no means no and have the conversation. Yeah. That we get to have the conversation because the stats are astounding how many women have been victimized and I would say are now survivors. Yes. And are stronger, almost that idea that a bone is broken and it in the healing, it can be stronger or it can still be the weakest part. Yes. By having a voice, it gets to heal. Gets to heal. And I'm sorry for what you had to go through it. You shouldn't have to. But to your point, there are many of us. And if we can unite to give each other a voice, 
there's nothing more powerful. And I do believe you can turn pain into power. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for your empathy. And likewise, that no young girl, young woman, old woman should have to be a victim. That's right. Should have to be afraid of a family member, a babysitter, a parent, a spouse, a roommate, and many, many people are. Yes. Yes. You know, we continue on those efforts. We're piloting a program called Safe Nights. We've done it in Texas where, back to your point, there isn't any one person, if you want to go out and be convivial and have a good time at night and visit restaurants or bars, you should not be fearful of what either happens in those places or when you go home from those places. So we've now started a program where restaurants and bars can be certified to keep their patrons safe. There's courses that they can go through and you can actually be certified. So again, it's a pilot. We're actually going to take this to multi-cities across the U.S. This goes back to, again, we talk about return on investment, and that is my job as a CEO. Mm -hmm. But your return on responsibility, how you return that investment is equally important. And we have a responsibility. So this notion of responsible hosting, this notion of being responsible to the planet, this return on responsibility, you know, when, you, when you started, you know, these are our passion points. I love that. I love that you can be a company that sells spirits, creates conviviality, and concurrently creates responsibility and safety. Yes. We make assumptions that if you sell alcohol, you're encouraging overuse. Yes. And we do absolutely not want overuse. Unlocking the magic of human connection is not overdoing it, right? Yeah. Too much of any good thing is, is not a good thing. <laughs> I don't care what. Mm -hmm. And being in control, being responsible, that's what's really important. You talked about the act signed into the infrastructure bill. And to me, that would be kind of a lifetime accomplishment. What are your other accomplishments or things you have in the works that are also things you're incredibly proud of? Our commitment to the planet and what we're doing. And, you know, every company, I think, is trying to figure out what is it that you're going to do for the planet? What are you going to do for sustainability? I'm so proud of what Pernod Ricard has accomplished. It's actually been recognized. The only beverage company has been recognized by the UN for their sustainable goals. You know, I think how we're pushing the envelope from a sustainability perspective is one area that I feel very proud about. What we're pushing on the responsibility side that I think we talked about is great. But it's not just also the big things. It's also the things that I think affect everyday life. And I'll give you an example. And all of these things that I'm talking about, I'm just here for the ride. I have these incredible, passionate people in my company that drive all these initiatives that I'm talking about. They wow me. And we have another initiative that we've partnered with. It's called Women of the Vines. And as you know, the alcohol industry has largely been a very male-dominated industry. And we have these incredible women that work in our industry, but still suffer harassment on the job and, you know, just things that should not be happening. And I have these incredible, talented women in our organization that partnered with Women's of the Vine, and they have created industry standards around harassment. They've created an industry speak up line that independent of what company you work for, if you're worried that if you report something in your company, there might be retaliation. We've created it industry-wide. We have new standards. This happens because there are people that really just want this to be a fabulous industry that anyone should feel the opportunity to work in. It shouldn't have stigma. 
whether it's the big initiatives that we do as an organization or these grassroots initiatives that happen from our people, it's pretty awe-inspiring. It is. I want to work for you. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> we will have some listeners who say the same thing. I want to be working for you. And others who say, that's really nice, but how do you stay in business? It Does this really work? So can you talk about overall financials that you can be good, responsible, convivial, and profitable? Yeah. If you look at our results in the last almost three years, we've grown double digit. We now have crossed the billion dollar mark on profit. We're approaching three billion in sales. The numbers we have posted, and they're all public record, have been some of the highest we've had in our company. I do believe a lot of that happens not because, you know, we're like, here's a number and you got to go hit it. Uh-uh. It happened because people felt that their contributions mattered. They looked under every nook and cranny. They were innovative. They were creative in how they did their jobs. It's a part of our DNA. I think that's why we're posting the numbers that we're posting. We're punching above our weight and tying the two together that you can have ROI with ROR feels really good. You're, in essence, the case study that for all of the naysayers who don't see that it's possible, you are a data point and a really good one <laughs> to say both can happen at the same time. They absolutely can. We live it every day. And I want to go back a little bit to young Anne, who went through at 14, the loss of a mom, went through sexual violence. You had a lot happening as a very young woman. Many women who go through that have killed themselves, have the adverse effect of childhood events. And there's a lot of research that says the probability that you would be successful is much smaller because of those things that happened. How did you get from the challenges you faced to the CEO chair? You're absolutely correct. I uh, have been told, uh, I've been sent by former companies, whether it's coaches or counseling or whatever, and most people have heard my story and said, yep, you should basically be a homeless drug addict or to your point, committed suicide. And it has been a hard life. I won't lie. And when people say, if you could do it over again, you know, would you do it over again differently? My answer is no. I have been through a lot. You know, I had a very violent first marriage. The violence led to me being told I could never have children. And the thing that I would tell people who've gone through trauma and difficulty is don't give up hope and don't stop believing. I met the man of my dreams and he gave me my next lease on life. He changed my world. He believes in life so much, like he drinks it like it's a cool, refreshing drink. He takes up every sip of life. And, you know, he gave me a lot in terms of believing in myself. We ultimately, you know, went through IVF and now I'm getting into territories that it's personal, but I got pregnant. It was a topic. I was near death. I think about if that happened to me today, with what we're facing on reproductive rights, I probably might have died. But we went through IVF, took me four years. We have two beautiful twins. But again, you know, within the first five years of their life was my daughter was diagnosed with cancer. By the way, she's in remission. She's doing great. They're all in college. It's fabulous. I love them. They're amazing. It's like this, you weeble, but you wobble, but you don't fall down. I have learned that adversity and disruption is not an if, it's a when. And as I've told my story publicly, I'm amazed Everyone has a story, but we're trained through life and culture to suppress it and act normal. I don't suppress it. I talk about it. I hope that it helps others feel like they too can feel like they're not victims, that life is within their control. And when you have that outlook, 
I don't care if it's the pandemic. I don't care what it is. You help people be resilient and you help people believe. Now, I've worked a lot on my purpose <laughs> and it started with my mother. And my mother said to me growing up, she said, you're going to meet a lot of people in this world. Some you're going to like, some you're not going to like. She goes, I don't care. She said, God loves everyone and God put a gift in everyone. And your job in life is no matter who you meet, learn their gift and learn from their gift. What's interesting is I did that. I found out that most people don't even know their own gifts. And so my purpose now as a leader, as a human being is whoever I meet, I want to showcase their own gift to themselves so they realize that not only can they do the possible, but they can also realize the impossible. And so that's what keeps me going. What a beautiful outlook on life. It may not be if, but when, and yet your share of adversity is probably on the scale more than most. I realize you can't exactly weigh loss of a parent versus cancer because that's a conversation that isn't worth having. But moving from victim to survivor seems pivotal. I would even go one step further. I think people can go from victim to thriver. It's what you said. When you have that broken bone, that bone can grow back stronger than it was before it was broken. If people can feel that and believe that and help each other to do that, gosh, it would be a better world. The healing creates the opportunity, not realized in everyone, for empathy and compassion and to find the gift even in the bad because there are opportunities I have fondly said, if not for the adversity, I would be average. And I really don't want to be average. The challenges invited me to be better. Yes. We all have adversity in our lives. If you haven't had any, boy, you're unique and lucky, right? But unfortunately, adversity then creates a narrative that sometimes becomes so negative that it keeps you from unleashing yourself. And most people will do that because they don't want to face the adversity. And if you face the adversity, you then control your narrative. You don't let the adversity make your narrative. I'll share first this time, and then I'm going to ask you the same. In dealing with my adversity, it seems like I went through every kind of therapy and alternative. I had a rebirthing coach. I went to a Mayan shaman. I mean, just like anything you can imagine if you went through the New Age catalog of stuff and traditional therapists and fill in the blanks. And somehow came out the other end and people in my therapy groups did end up taking their lives, ended up with severe multiple personality disorders. I mean, there were people who have the experiences that you've had and that I've had that if their life continues, they don't have the choices that we have. And so I've often wondered, why was I spared that impact? Why do I get to do what I do? And maybe it's so that I can get to do what I do. But I wonder for you, how did you navigate the trauma? I want to talk about, I know, a topic that is near and dear to your heart, mentorship. Mm -hmm. When people go through adversity, they go inward. What I have learned is in times of adversity, you actually have to do the opposite. You got to go outward. In my life, I have distinguished between people that mentor me and this is different than people who sponsor me. Mentors are those people who, when you close the door, you can trust them to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. 
my mentors have included my my own husband. They've included friends. Now they include my children. My children know me better than anyone, and it's scary because they put it right between the eyes. I've had coworkers be my mentors. I've had employees be my mentors. Opening up and letting them in is really, really important. And sponsors who I've had incredible sponsors, right? They sponsored me in my career. They've helped me go up the ladder. They believed in my work. But with sponsors, you want your act to be together, right? But with mentors, you can close the door and be yourself. And if it weren't for those mentors in my life, and I've had a few that really lifted me when I needed lifting. That's where the vulnerability comes in. And I've had people tell me square in the eyes, what you are doing is wrong. And let me help you see why. This is incredibly powerful. And I, in turn, try to be mentors to others. And the reason mentorship is so important is you're creating the benchmark of tomorrow. Because these are the people who will take over tomorrow. You know, we're mentors when we're parents, we're mentors to our friends. Being a mentor and finding the right mentor, I think it's critical in terms of how people overcome. How did you find the professional colleague mentors? How did you identify who was right and as importantly, who was not? Yeah. Who do you not want to open up to? I tend to gravitate towards those people who are curious in the world. I tend to gravitate to those people who worry as much about the how of what they do as much as the what of what they do. Because the what gives them credibility, the how gives them trust. You know, sometimes, and it's happened, a lot of my mentors have come from my professional life because I spend a lot of time in my professional life. There are people that I still work with today, 20 years later, who are still my mentors. But they're smart, they're curious, they're caring, they're consistent of who they are as a human being. And these are the qualities that I look for. Not only do they become lifelong mentors, they become lifelong friends. Some of these people have worked with me, worked for me. They were partners with me. And if anyone who's listening to this podcast, who are these people, they'll know who they are because they're pivotal in my life. They're absolutely pivotal. Do you have a regular cadence of meeting with them or it's when you need it or it's different for different ones? I wouldn't say there's a there's a normal kind of relationship cadence. When I'm in adversity or I need help, I make that call. And it's for people to have these relationships. They're like plants. You have to keep watering the relationship. So when you want to pick the flower, it's there. So these people have been in my life for decades. Then along the journey, I might meet someone new. I'm always on the lookout because everyone else always makes me smarter. I'm just, I'm not smart enough by myself. Even that statement says you're probably smarter than most because you take the time to get smarter. You're investing in them. So much to learn. We talk about the mindsets of a future ready leader and one is intellectually curious, intellectually versatile. Yeah. You're always learning. Yes. We have to be. Yeah. The reason curiosity is important and, you know, people ask me, hey, Anne, what advice do you have for me as I, you know, go to school or I, you know, start my career? I always say to people, exercise both sides of your brain. And I will tell you that intersection of when the right and left side are working equally, that is the future because the problems are getting more wicked and complex. We all know that. People laugh at me when they hear that one undergraduate degree was in economics and my other degree was in religious theology. Part of it was just I needed to exercise both sides of my brain. Economics was great. It was the study of human behavior from an economic standpoint. That's great. But really, 
the motivation for people is always money? No, it's not. So that's why I did religion. I wanted to understand what drove mankind and humankind. And, and the fear of death is one of the biggest things we all deal with that unites us. So what other motivations do people have? So that's really in my career. People ask me, like, what's one of the secrets of your career? I would say it's my educational background. You must be highly sought after as a mentor, and you can't mentor everyone. Certainly the number of people who would seek you, that's all you'd be doing all day. How do you navigate that conversation? Because my guess is you would like to mentor everyone. I do get a lot of requests, and I try to exercise what I say. I tell them what they need to hear, unfortunately not what they want to hear. I'm very open about expectations, and I say to them, I would love to mentor you, but I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I can give you what you need, and I don't want to in any way mishandle the relationship. So I'm very upfront. If I cannot do it, if I cannot commit to them what they need, I will very politely decline. And it happens to me all the time, and it's painful to say no, but it's better to say no and not disappoint than to say yes and devastate them. One of the people I interviewed said that she looks at public figures. And one of my friends talked about Madeleine Albright as her mentor. Not that she hung out with Madeleine Albright, but that what she learned in reading about and following her speeches and things like that, that our mentors can also be public figures who we've never met. Yes. So funny you mentioned Madeleine Albright. She's one of my heroes. I was very fortunate to get to meet her before she passed. And I told her, I said, you inspire me so much, Secretary Albright. And, you know, her pins. She made statements with her pins. There's that famous story how it all started with Saddam Hussein. And um, I said, you inspired me, Secretary. And I showed her my nails. And the way she does her pins, I do my nails. I was recently visiting our Chivas brothers where we make our scotch. So I had the nails done. So it was our brand symbol for Chivas. So every time I visit a brand, I put their brand on my finger. When the Ukrainian war started, I had the Ukrainian flag on my nails. When we did sex responsibly, sex responsibly was on my nails. During voting season, I had vote now on my nails. So I think you're absolutely right. There are people we don't even know and we watch their acts in life. We can absolutely say, well, what's my version of that? I get the question, and I, I know this is crazy, so I'm just going to leave you with this. They said, who was your first mentor as a child? Okay, you're going to think I'm nuts because the person was dead. It was Cleopatra. I remember reading the biography of Cleopatra and thinking, oh, my goodness. Talk about a woman in a man's world and look at what she did ruling one of the most powerful countries of that time. What she used, her guile, her intelligence. And I was like, I want to be like. What she taught me is use your powers as a person to make the impossible happen. And I learned that lesson from a mentor that I never got to speak to. And you've done that. <laughs> I hope I got a long way to go. <laughs> so, Anne, I'm mindful of time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. How would people learn about Pernod Ricard? How would they learn about you? We're all online these days, right? Come to our website, you know, Google me. We're very public about what we do and what we stand for. We believe in building the value and the values of the company. So come visit us. We love people and we love unlocking the magic with you. Thank you. And you have certainly unlocked the magic in this conversation. Thank you to you. Thank you to Pernod Ricard. 
thank you for those who coordinated our conversation and for our listeners. Thank you for engaging in the conversation. Please take what you learn from Anne and consider what you can put into practice in your own life. Please follow us on LinkedIn and visit our website, innovativeleadership.com. Mm-hmm.